Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 3rd of August, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Coral News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Well, we're in lockdown. Yeah, lots to get through here. So let's uh, let's deal with lockdown. This is a statement from uh, uh, Greater Manchester, because, of course, they have declared a major incident there and uh, what did they have to say the public should be reassured that the guidelines announced by government on thursday remain unchanged this move by greater manchester's strategic coordination group is simply to enable our public agencies to access additional resources they need so in order to do that they declared an emergency uh, what effect is that likely to have on the minds of uh, the population of Manchester? Well, fear, Mike, the theme through this news is going to be that the British government wants fear in the population. We're going to explain why, but fear. The other thing I picked up on there is the language. You've got a strategic, what was it, advisory Str group? Strategic coordination, coordination group. group. This is all paramilitary language which has come into the public sector. So your city council, which should be looking after you, now talks in terms of strategy and intelligence and surveillance. Uh, absolutely. They went on to say, the more we stick to the new guidelines and drive the R rate down, the quicker they will be removed. Please do not visit someone else's home or garden unless you have formed a support bubble. Um, so uh, no mention of spikes uh, and bubbles there. But anyway, uh, we'll move on because, uh, of course, here is uh, the wonderful uh, Matt Hancock. Thank you. I nearly forgot his name there. He's utterly a forgettable person. Uh, and of course, this was the, the lead up to it. He was uh, uh, basically suggesting that, that there's a second wave coming. Uh, we don't have to worry about it, though, because the government has it all in hand. Let's have a look at the changes that they had announced. Uh, casinos, bowling alleys, skating rinks uh, remaining closed. Indoor performances will not resume. Pilots of larger crowds in sports venues will not take place. Wedding receptions of up to, 40, uh, up to 30 people will not be permitted. Uh, and they will extend the requirement to wear a face covering to some other settings, including mm. museums, cinemas, libraries and places of worship. I'm really interested to know how you sing together when you're all trying to sing through a face mask. But anyway, they were talking about the R rate and keeping it down. So let's look at uh, the government's latest statistics on the R rate there. Uh, and the UK as a whole, apparently, is uh, the R rate is between 0 0.8 and 0 0.9. Uh, which means that the growth rate uh, UK-wide is between minus 4% and minus 1%. In other words, it's disappearing. Uh, England is between 0.8 and 1%. What's very interesting here, Brian, is that uh, the northwest, where Manchester is, of course, is between 0 0.8, uh, 0.8 and 1.1 for the R rate, which is minus 5% to plus 1%, uh, which looks roughly the same as the southwest in Plymouth. Um, so we can't be too far behind Manchester. Uh, and uh, But at the end of the day, we're locking down uh, a city on the basis of something that they can't actually uh, establish. So what they said about this was uh, that estimates of R and the growth rates per day are less reliable and less useful in determining the state of, of the epidemic when disease incidence is low. And as you can see in the northwest there, there's a double asterisk. Uh, and the double asterisk says low case numbers 
and or a high degree of variability in transmission across the region means e these estimates are insufficiently robust to inform policy decisions. But if you look at the statement that Manchester City Council pushed out, sorry, Manchester, Greater Manchester Combined Authority pushed out, it's all about the R number. So they have based their, um, their decision their policy decision on a number which in the government's own statistics uh, they say is unreliable for basing policy decisions well, on? Well, unreliable. They've also said they've been unable to say what R is for a very long time. Perhaps David might like to comment on that because, of course, Nippy Sturgeon got caught short uh, on the subject of the R number, I seem to remember. She didn't know how to answer it. Well, she did. I mean, she was very clear that we were we were taking policy decisions based on the R number. And, and when asked what the R number actually was, she said, oh, I've made myself completely clear. We, we, we don't know. We can't know. The experts don't know. We don't know. And that's when we had more COVID. So now we've got less COVID and the R number is harder to measure. We really don't know. So for that reason, it could be anything. So we'll, we'll close it. We'll close down Manchester. So, so we've got the UK being closed down by the government based on false statistics, manipulation of statistics, downright lies. And what we're observing now is more or less mass psychosis at the weekend. Uh, uh, Mike in a uh, recycling centre, a man, one, one of the employees jumped away from me because presumably he assumed I got to, or he felt I got too close to him and he literally jumped back. It was, it was an astonishing thing to see. Um, but I have to say that one other of the employees um, was very receptive to the fact that uh, uh, the government statistics did, did not add up. And he said, we're basically being kept in our houses so that they can do all the things they want to do, including a war with China. And I thought that was pretty um, astute, a pretty astute. Yeah. yeah. Coming from the recycling centre. Yeah. Well, so Matt Hancock is the face of this. Every time he gets asked a question uh, about the inconsistencies in the advice and so on, he seems pretty difficult, for, uh, pretty uh, hard for him to answer those questions, but uh, increasing calls for Hancock to go. So the hashtag is Hancock must go. I'm not certain uh, who would replace him uh, because they all seem like a bunch of, uh, well, they don't seem terribly capable of, uh, of doing anything sensible. And let's, uh, let's move on to this because another example of how sensible the British government is, uh, this is the graphic that they've chosen to encourage people to get tested. Got symptoms? Get tested. Go to nhs.uk slash coronavirus. It's free. It could save a life, Brian. But it of could. Course, it could. But of course, uh, getting tested involves shoving something down your throat and up your nose. Um, so the guy arriving at the drive-in uh, test centre wearing a mask, it does seem a bit ridiculous. Uh, but it gets better uh, because the government has announced that it's going to roll out two new rapid coronavirus tests ahead of the winter. Uh, and these are going to be able to provide uh, very rapid uh, results just within just 90 minutes. And uh, well, here's the first company that's going to be providing uh, that information. This is them, DNA Nudge. Uh, this is one of the companies. They're going to be providing uh, a new test that uses DNA to detect the virus. Um, and uh, there are going to be 5,000 DNA machines supplied by DNA Nudge. 
uh, to provide 5.6, sorry, 5.8 million tests in the coming months. Um, so the 5,000 DNA nudge box machines supplied by DNA Nudge will be rolled out across NHS hospitals in the UK. Uh, they're currently being tested in St Mary's Hospital Paddington, Charing Cross, West Middlesex University Hospital, Chelsea and Westminster, Royal Hospital Chelsea, uh, and also Queen Charlotte's uh, and Chelsea Maternity Hospital uh, and a couple of other places. Um, the machines apparently are located in cancer wards, A&E and maternity wards protect those most at risk. But as you can see here, DNA Nudge is all about shopping with your DNA. Uh, so no white coats there, they say. Uh, we put your saliva into our patented cartridge, uh, essentially an entire lab on a chip, uh, the Nudge box where the magic happens. Uh, and uh, the cartridge is activated, your DNA is extracted, analyzed, and the data is loaded onto our personalized, onto, sorry, your personalized capsule. The DNA band, choose a color combination, wear your digital DNA, and then you can go and uh, attach it to an app, which allows you to pay, uh, and your identity is identified, uh, is, is uh, uh, established that way. The question is, uh, what happens to this DNA information? Is DNA nudge taking a copy of it uh, under That's this agreement true. with the government? Does that DNA information get shared with the government? None of this is clear. Uh, I suspect uh, we know the answer to that, but none of it's clear. Uh, this is the other organization then, uh, Nanopore. Uh, so Oxford Nanopore Technologies partners with UK government to roll out uh, Lampore, a new generation of COVID-19 test. This is a truly magical test Brian, because this is going to be able to test not just for COVID-19, but all kinds of other respiratory diseases as well, including influenza A, influenza B and RSV. Uh, so that's pretty good. Matt Hancock said, uh, we're using the most innovative technologies available to tackle coronavirus. Millions of new rapid coronavirus tests will provide on-the-spot results in under, under 90 minutes, helping us to break chains of transmission quickly. Of course, also helping them to pursue their localised uh, lockdown policies. Yeah, so this is um, this is high technology now being used to suck in all the data. More on that in just a moment. Um, Davis. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just wondering. I'm wondering what's the false positive rate because the the if the problem we've had up until now is the the test that's been used is actually not a diagnostic test. So the best test available the test with the greatest background of experience wasn't suitable for diagnostic work and was prone to give false positives. In fact, depending how you set up the test, any result you chose. Um, so the ones that have been very hastily developed and are now being rushed out, how reliable are they? And, and also, as, as COVID declines um, in, the, in the population, because seasonal flu does that when, when it's summer, um, and there's, there's very few actual positive tests, then the false positives will, will come to dominate. This is this is part of the problem of, of testing for something that's very rare, is if, if your test gives even a small false positive rates, then most of the positive results become false because most people that you test don't have it. Um, is that a risk? I, I'm, I'm very sceptical about how much this is actually going to help. It's all very good and well for Matt Hancock to trumpet it as a great technological breakthrough, but there's, there's problems with great technological breakthroughs, particularly ones at very short notice, and the problem is uh, error and unforeseen consequences. Uh, David, you're, you're, you're hopelessly missing the point there that, of course, it's not there to help with the disease. It's there to help the government pursue its policy agenda. 
Well, for pursuing the policy agenda, then the more false positives, the better. And uh, there's not a problem. Absolutely. Well, let's follow it through with uh, propaganda. I've got to say a big thank you to one of our viewers who sent a very astute email this morning. This is just part of it. Let's have a look. I, I spotted this government advertisement in the Daily Mail this morning. Well, what was the uh, person looking at? They were looking at this in the little box, sponsored, worried about staying safe. Here's how an army of health professionals is working behind the scenes to help protect us from coronavirus and get us back to normal. So it sort of looks like an advert, but it just says sponsored. Well, well done, the viewer, because this is the article in question, Daily Mail. Um, there's that headline there and notice the terminology, army of healthcare professionals. Just have a look at the man. I think it's a man outside the window of that car. Is this Novichok the sequel, Mike? Um, she hasn't got anything on. He's dressed as though he's going into a nuclear zone. This is complete and utter madness, of course. Um, but uh, have a look at this little bit here, because this is the Daily Mail sponsored by the UK government. So this is government propaganda. This makes North Korea look uh, amateur, doesn't it? Uh, we've got the full thing here. So let's follow it through. And in this article, we have to bring in our old friend, Gurinda Singh. Now, some of you might not remember Gurinder, um, but let's take you back to the UK column on the 8th of July, uh, because we picked up on an interesting um, article. This is what you get asked on a 45-minute NHS test and trace phone call. And uh, this is the article. And uh, who's it by? Well, it's by the UK government. So this is earlier propaganda. And who was the key man? Well, of course, it was Gurinder himself. I'll just give you a little snippet to remind you, or if you're new to this, what he said last time. He, uh, he says he's often the first person that someone who's tested positive will have spoken to. So you need to be delicate. You need to be reassuring. And he says the training he's had is fantastic. Calls last 45 minutes. He says who he is. He explains the importance of isolating and sharing contacts. Give us your detail. Uh, because it's the only way to stop the transmission and quickly return to normality. You must give the government your details because otherwise Corona, the virus, is not going to go. That's what Mr Singh says. And uh, he asks when their symptoms started. Uh, he asks if they've got any underlying health conditions. And then he comes to the tracing bit where he builds up a picture of a person who's been in recent close contact in order to get the right contact details. Where are we now with Mr. Singh? Well, we're now focusing on the Asian and black and minority ethnic community because um, they're very worried about Coroni in that uh, proportion. So this is the latest article. And what is it? It's fear propaganda. So let's have a look at what the man says. I feel proud to be part of this national effort and I look forward to telling my children about the time their father put himself forward to help this country in a time of need. This is quasi war language, Mike. This is like a man who's gone on to the battlefield, apparently, but he sat in an office talking to people over the phone. Uh, this is propaganda. But the subliminal message from the British government is that we're on a war footing fighting Coroni. And bring in another lady, Cam Caster. 
Um, imagine, think of the language here. This is raw NLP being used on the British public. Imagine your husband is dying of coronavirus in hospital. It's his birthday, you're desperate to visit him. But if you see him now, you'll have to self-isolate for a fortnight and you won't be able to be there to comfort him at the end. It's a desperate, almost unimaginable choice to have to make. But what she does is takes a choice which nobody should have to make and she's making it acceptable. Now, I'm not blaming this lady. All of these people are being cynically used by the British government, but this is propaganda, very dangerous stuff, Mike. But it's worse than that. She's suggesting there's a choice. In fact, there's no choice at all because you're sent home to self-isolate. Indeed, yeah. So that's already messing with your mind. Well, the whole article messes with your mind and I'd encourage people to watch it. But of course, the Daily Mail pushes it out as if it's a proper article. No, this is government propaganda. She goes on for a lot of people, especially if they haven't seen it firsthand. The virus can almost feel like a virtual thing. Well, that's because it is. It's created. This is a created thing. So when you get a positive diagnosis, it can be quite overwhelming. I had a very young woman who was working with assisted learning adults, and she was totally shocked because everybody at a workplace had tested positive. That's why the NHS test and trace service is so important in tackling coronavirus. What else have we got? We've all got to make it work. We need everybody's confidence. I think people are becoming more aware and the more familiar they become, the more that's going to help. So, David, just to pop across to you, um, this is all about getting the whole fear factor into people's head. You've got the virus, well, you're nearly a goner. Never mind that you may have it with no symptoms. Yes, I mean, why was the woman shocked? Because everyone in her workplace tested positive. She was shocked because everyone was still at work and they were all perfectly well. That would be quite shocking. But it doesn't mean that there's a problem. And uh, Mr Singh, the, the bit when he comes to tell his grandchildren, um, that might not go as he anticipated. Granddad, what did you do when the government took all our rights away? Oh, I helped them, son. He'll, no, that's not going to go well. It's not going to go well. And somebody pointed out to us that this, this particular piece of comment by this lady is almost equivalent to the fact that you test positive, you've tested positive for cancer. This is really what's being, or HIV maybe. This is very, very dangerous stuff. Bring in another Asian face, because of course this is pure uh, government propaganda. So we've got Atif here. He said there's a man who was very upset and anxious. He had four or five, only had four or five pounds in his pocket, was at the risk of homelessness. He was in a dark place and quite emotional over the phone. I was slightly alarmed. I felt like there was a potential for self-harm. To avoid that, I escalated the case to the safeguarding team who took appropriate measures to give him support. So basically, the UK government here is using ATIF to draw people into what's a non-existent care system. So you touch the NHS test and trace, you could have the social services visiting you because you've mentioned your children. This is the NHS, David, being used to create the Stasi state. We have already know that Google and GCHQ are now involved with the NHS. This is the use of supposedly the nation's best loved um, institution in order to rake in that data. It's Stasi Germany on steroids, I think. 
It's also the Scottish model of government and uh, everything's joined up to the ultimate degree. And it was also trialled firstly in the Isle of Man and caused a complete catastrophe there because the reports that were going in from the medical profession to things like social services meant that people were not seeking medical advice because they knew what it meant. It meant all sorts of trouble with the state. Um, and that meant that uh, conditions, particularly things like mental health conditions, depression, um, were not were going untreated because the cost of treating them might be losing your children. Yeah, right. Well, let's just follow through on the article because in that article we get told what's really going on. Bring in the token white face, and here we've got a lady, Sarah Hartle. Uh, what did she say? When we started, the system was brand new and tailored to what we needed at the time, but we found that. As it's gone on, the system needed to adapt because restaurants, pubs and shops have reopened. Now, when trying to trace contacts, it will prompt me to ask who was wearing masks, if screens were up and if they paid by cash or card. That way, I can more easily work out if somebody is at risk. So what we've got here is the government using this lady, absolutely using and abusing her because what is being tested is an AI system to hoover up this data. So this is nothing to do with uh, human interaction and kindness. This is putting a machine at the forefront of the data. And she goes on, she says, I think everyone's got to be proud of what we've done together. We've got the amount of cases right down. Everybody I've seen is adhering to social distancing, but we've and we've got hand sanitizers everywhere and people are wearing masks. It's brilliant. Well, this is a, a lady who needs a bit of an education because she just doesn't understand what she's doing. I just don't want people to forget that it's still out there. We're not out of the woods yet. So that's the final comment in the article. And of course, that's the government ramming into people's heads. Be frightened of uh, Coney, the uh, Coroni, the <laughs> COVID virus. And um, it's basically don't forget the virus. It's still there. Be afraid. And we'll end uh, with Mr. Singh again. Here he is. This is the picture of him in the latest article. And um, I happen to notice that he's got a belt on. But the, arm, the, the article opens the NHS test and trace is using an army of healthcare professionals to track COVID-19 and prevent its spread. Now, I don't know whether that's a regimental belt, um, but it looks very like one. And if it's not real, I think this goes very well with the army theme. Mm. Propaganda, absolute propaganda. And what have we got here? Um, lockdown is easing and life is looking a bit brighter, but the very real threat of coronavirus hasn't gone away. So the British government now outpacing North Korea in the quality of its propaganda. Uh, meanwhile, population lockdown, dangerous stuff. Uh, well, let's just uh, move up north of the border, David. And of course, uh, the Scottish government, uh, any time they're being challenged on uh, their approach to COVID, uh, it seems that, uh, well, people get censored. Well, this is this is a tweet from uh, from people interacting or trying to with Davi Sridhar. Now, she is the uh, expert uh, who is essentially setting policy north of the border. And uh, Nicola Sturgeon, we hear, won't do anything without Davi's say-so and endorsement. Uh, and that tweet is uh, reads as follows. 
interesting that the chief advisor to ScotGov on COVID-19 would block the, Murdo Fraser, convener of the, Scot the Scottish Parliament COVID-19 committee. That is a strange thing to block. I mean, Debbie's blocked me on Twitter and anyone else who has any questions, but that's a strange one. And the second tweet was uh, the Liberal Democrats' uh, Scottish parliamentary health spokesman, also blocked by the government's chief advisor. So um, the, the, what we're seeing here is, is, a, is a kind of strange uh, politicisation of the advice. Anything that doesn't endorse the government line is immediately excluded from any interaction so that the, the advice remains unsullied with you know, counter arguments, thoughts, questions, um, scrutiny, anything like that. Um, and in the meantime, in Scotland, David, uh, the, elder, the elderly died first, and uh, we're not going to be terribly sensitive in how we communicate that. So this is a handout to uh, people, relatives of people in the care home. It was dated the 31st of March, uh, and it says relatives uh, are asked to accept that transfer to hospital may not be offered if it appears the best interest of the patient may be served by a conservative or palliative approach. The chance of hospital admission improving the outcome is very low. The disadvantages are that the patient may become disorientated, distressed and afraid in an unfamiliar environment. There may be less nursing and care input, and if the patient becomes palliative, the care home is a much friendlier place for the end of life care. This can be done as well or, be, or to a better standard than the hospital, uh, and there may be a possibility of closer family involvement. I hope you accept this plan. Um, if you want further discussion, please please speak to us. GPs, the emergency staff are assessing patients remotely at the moment uh, uh, based on the observations of nursing staff. This is to avoid healthcare staff who are at high risk of being symptomatic carriers coming into the homes unnecessarily and bringing COVID-19 with them. This also apply, applies to the management of other conditions. So that's telling the relatives of elderly people in the care home that there will be no hospital care and there will be no uh, medical care other than remote advice. You're on your own. That's an example of the care homes being essentially isolated from the NHS, and we've seen the spike in deaths that resulted from that decision. Uh, absolutely. Uh, now, on Saturday, then the government uh, the government decided to uh, announce its over fifties plan. Now, for anybody not living in the UK, you may not know what that means. But of course, we've been bombarded with advertisements on television uh, for the last forty years uh, to get an over fifties uh, life insurance policy. This isn't quite the, the same thing, of course, uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, the UK uh, suggested the UK government suggested. Uh, and uh, many of the mainstream media published on Saturday uh, that, the, that uh, they were intending to uh, effectively require anybody over the age of 50 to stay in their homes. Um, and uh, well, this generated quite a backlash. And as a result, then uh, they rolled out Robert Jenrick, who's the housing secretary. This is obviously the kind of person you would expect to make a comment on this. Uh, you wouldn't expect anybody in the health department to, to make a comment on this. Uh, and he's basically saying that's not something uh, that's being actively considered. He says it's just speculation. Uh, you would expect the government to be considering all of the range of options that might be available. Um, so uh, uh, the Sunday Times, when they were covering this, mentioned the fact that uh, uh, people between 50 and 70 might also be given personalised risk ratings, um, whatever that means. Uh, but Brian, um, the, this looked very much to me like one of these instances where the behavioural scientists have pushed out a message into the mainstream press in order to gather, so you, gather the analytics from the social media response yeah. and make an assessment of just how far they can push people 
uh, before they uh, go nuts? There's, there's no question, Mike, that they are into this level of applied psychology. We've got the behavioral insights team pushing out fear messages, no risk analysis done on people who suffer from depression or mental health. Uh, the government using applied psychology to get its policies in force. And they're going to try every trip. If we're into the business of murdering elderly people, that's what's happened to tens of thousands of elderly people. They've been culled in their nursing homes. The government's going to use any technique it can. This is very, very dangerous stuff. Absolutely. Now, uh, good news, everyone, because we know already that, of course, uh, AstraZeneca doesn't need, or apparently, maybe, doesn't need approval for its uh, vaccine, its forthcoming vaccine, because it's been uh, gone ahead, given permission to go ahead and, and manufacture that vaccine uh, before it's even had approval. So the business risk doesn't count. Uh, so approval, who needs approvals? What we're asking, well, actually, this has now changed, Brian, to liability. Who needs liability? Because there is none. Uh, AstraZeneca has been granted protection from future product liability claims related to COVID-19 uh, vaccine um, by most of the countries with which it's already struck a deal. Um, and uh, this is a, a unique situation, according to Ruud Dauber, the, the uh, AstraZeneca responsible. Uh, a spokesperson, a unique situation where, as a company, uh, w where we as a company simply cannot take the risk if in four years the vaccine is showing side effects. Uh, in the contracts we have in place, we're asking for indemnification. For most countries, it is acceptable to take that risk on their shoulders because their national because it's in their national interest. Uh, and I find this uh, pretty fascinating, Brian, because of course uh, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago. Bill Gates was on one of the U.S. Uh, television news channels talking about this very thing, talking about the fact that that governments need to be involved in this to provide the indemnity on behalf of of the companies. Now, in AstraZeneca's defense, if I want to give them a defense at all, um, they have agreed to produce uh, these uh, something like two billion doses of this vaccine uh, without any. So on a no, on a non-profit basis. They're obviously getting their manufacturing costs, their salaries and so on covered, um, but they're not going to be making a profit on it is what they claim. So um, that's one of the reasons that they're using to, to justify this. But David, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, the first thing is, if you if you've got no liability, then automatically you're going to be taking greater risk, probably much greater risk. Now, that risk is not being communicated. And there is now no incentive at all for the companies concerned to accurately communicate to the public the risk that they're actually running or even try and find out what it is. Because, hey, hey it's not my problem. It's the taxpayer. The taxpayer will pick it up. Not our problem at all. We were just trying to help. Sorry about all the harm, but we were just trying to help. So the, any, any residual restraint, not that there's much, on, on the, the big pharma companies in this particular situation has now been removed. I find that very disturbing. Um, well, indeed. And uh, just to remind people what, it's, what he said there, uh, this is a unique situation where we as a company simply cannot take the risk if in four years the vaccine is showing side effects. So they're acknowledging there that there's a, a significant risk uh, that any potential damage will not appear immediately. It could take several years before it appears. Yeah, well, this... We don't know. I mean, what, what's what else is going on here with the with the uh, the vaccine move, which has been extremely hasty, 
And this is all new technology. It's not even a sort of a variation of a previous vaccine. This is this is looking at DNA-based vaccines. This is this is this entirely new technology. And what level of harm are we talking about? No one knows. And we're going to run it out an, an initial mass uh, vaccination program. So by the time anything comes to light, how much harm's been done by that point? It's it's it seems it seems reckless. Remember, this is for a disease which is no more harmful than seasonal flu. Uh, the CDC estimates a 0.026% case fatality rate, and that's probably an overestimate. Um, and it doesn't affect basically people under 45 at all. The young people less risk than being struck by lightning. Why are we communicating this degree of risk and uncertainty to people under those circumstances? Again. Where's, where's the assessment of risk? Where's the judgment? Well, they don't need one because they don't care about the people, David. They do not care if they're elderly. They're a waste of time. They can be cold. They can die uh, with no medical treatment in the nursing homes. And if the profits are, uh, are there to be made by big farmers, so what AstraZeneca is doing is a lost leader for billions of pounds of profit in the future. That's why it's so happy to say, well, we're not going to make a profit on the design work on the vaccine. No, because they know they're going to be hoovering up the money once the vaccine doses are put out there. But the government simply does not care how many people die. The more people who die, particularly uh, if they're older, the less pensions there are to pay. So I think it's pretty clear what's going on. And uh, yeah, we're being cold. Looks that way. Now, uh, Russia uh, has to make several million doses of COVID-19 vaccine per month by 2021, says uh, a Russian minister. This is the industry and trade minister, Denis Mantarov. Uh, speaking to TASS, he said, uh, according to preliminary estimates, due to the launch of uh, contract platforms this year will be able to ensure the production of several hundred thousand doses of vaccine per month, uh, with a subsequent increase to several million by the beginning of next year. Um, I'm very, I'm wondering quite a bit, Brian, whether this is uh, actually their intention, whether they are able, able to meet these timescales, uh, or whether this, in fact, is a response to the allegations a week or two ago uh, that the Russians were hacking Western companies uh, to, so, and so this is this is merely this is an attempt to sort of uh, say we don't need your vaccine. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm sure they don't. Uh, let's uh, end the segment with this. Uh, an email which came in this morning. Um, I find it fascinating. It's from a very experienced um, retired NHS person. Hello, Brian. Hope all well with you. Purpose of the email is that over many weeks. I entered online conversations on MSN, just putting thoughts about mass vaccination, general COVID bits and pieces, with the aim of getting people to think. I didn't enter into conversations, just put in stuff once. It was interesting to see how many people liked what I wrote and sometimes wrote encouraging replies on the site. My computer no longer allows me to do this, so I have to assume someone has been into it. There's a section at the bottom of each news item which says join the conversation which no longer works. I am silent. Now, I don't think anybody's been into the computer. I think essentially just been blocked. Um, but um, yes, if you are an experienced person with medical training, you speak out on uh, COVID to criticise or describe as nonsense, you're going to get silence. And somebody in the chat box has just said that the 
uh, lady or one of the lady American doctors that spoke out on the video recently saying what was going on was madness has now lost her job. So criticize the governments on uh, COVID and uh, you're going to be silenced. Mm. Um, well, just briefly on masks here, Brian, uh, this is a tweet that I just wanted to highlight here. Uh, one key rule in public health is never blame, blame the population, says the tweet. Anyway, the spread of COVID-19 is not just down to the population following the rules. Uh, Japan, with 100% face mask adherence and culturally uh, ingrained social distancing, is on the cusp of a serious outbreak. And they're showing that the, uh, the, the spread is, is increasing uh, again. Now, of course, Japan being held up by the proponents of mask wearing, as being the perfect example, because they were uh, hit pretty lightly by the so-called first wave of uh, COVID-19, um, but their case, their cases are going up. So, uh, uh, have they suddenly stopped wearing masks? I don't know what to say anymore. <laughs> Actually, we've got to, we've got to the stage, Mike, where where how do you how do you describe what's happening? Mm, indeed, it's incredible. Uh, well, very quickly, um, our old friend Common Purpose, the political charity, uh, seems to be coming to the fore again. Why should we be interested? Well, because, of course, Common Purpose was the Trojan horse to get those change agents in place to change society, the socio-economic political change agents. But interesting to see that Lord McGuinness of Drumglass a few days ago was asking HM government where any, whether any member of the British Armed Forces uh, and a police force has been sent on a leadership course run by Common Purpose. Now, fascinating, this should come to the fore. Equally fascinating, the response from Baroness Goldie as Minister of State, Ministry of Defence. Uh, she says information about courses attended by British Armed Forces personnel during the last 20 years is not held in a way which allow a fuller answer without incurring disproportionate cost. Awfully sorry about that, but we just don't have the record. Some <laughs> records, however, show that between 2014 and 19, six army officers, one in each year, attended leadership development courses provided by Common Purpose. The RAF and the Royal Navy have not used programmes run by Common Purpose to train personnel. So we don't really know, but, well, some of them have. Uh, some individuals may have undertaken training with this company during their resettlement period. It's not a company, it's a charity. Um, the comprehensive leadership skills and qualifications obtained in the armed forces means that such training is rarely considered necessary. We don't really know anything about this. We don't need it, apart from the fact that David Cameron and the Conservative Party promoted it heavily even when Eric Pickles, as uh, communities minister, said that no local authority should touch it. So somebody's not telling the truth here. Confirming this would require manually checking all service leaders' joint personnel administration records to identify, retrieve and collate the details. This information could only be provided at disproportionate cost. No information is held by the Home Office about external courses attended by individual police officers. Police training and development is a matter for the College of Policing and for police forces locally. So we really don't know. We haven't really got a clue. Uh, well, it's not difficult to say what's going on. This is a document from back in 2005. Uh, it's talking about a Nottingham uh, Army barracks 
uh, where they were calmly holding common purpose training courses. So this is the agenda for that day. Here's 2003 and we have Commodore Andrew Matthews, the Commodore then of the Naval Base in Devonport, part of Common Purpose Advisory Group in Plymouth. But the Ministry of Defence has no idea any of this was going on. Luckily, some members of the public did. Um, we've got another board here, London 2004. Uh, when we get into the detail, who pops up? Well, we've got Richard Hatfield, the personnel director, the Ministry of Defence. But there's no information. We really don't understand what's going on. And if you ask the government about common purpose, they've got no idea. They don't really know what it's about. So here's they work for you com and Philip Davis back in 2007 asked how much the Ministry of Defence had spent on it and we've got thousands and thousands of pounds 56,000 uh, pounds 66 42,000 pounds 58,000 pounds 83,000 pounds hundreds of thousands of pounds gone on training but apparently the government had no idea that this was going on if you want to see some detail on this, go to cpexposed.com website where we have put a lot of information about uh, military training. Had to take a video because there's so much. Uh, but apparently the government itself has no idea, Mike, what, what Common Purpose was about. They don't really understand it and uh, we can't really answer any questions. So if you'd like to know uh, why the government is so shy of the truth about common purpose. Uh, the answer is because common purpose is a government approved socio-political change agent. And of course, when we have public officials now not behaving properly to do with the NHS or COVID, for example, the reason is they've been reframed and they can't think properly and Common Purpose was one of the lead change agents to start interfering with the way people think. We'll do more on this in the coming news programmes. OK, let's quickly move on to economic issues. And I just like this uh, tweet from Aaron Jin. Uh, what victory looks like for lockdown advocates? Uh, and David, uh, that's a, a picture that which can really be applied. To this particular graph is for the United States, but this could be applied to just about every Western nation. Yes, it must be very similar here. It's actually easier to get this, the, the figures for America because it's a more open society. But that's down 33% right, in, what, two months. Now, just to give you a point of comparison, the Great Depression the, from, from 1929 to the trough in 1932 fell 30% in three years. So it's worse than the Great Depression, and it's taken two months, not three years. That's how bad it is. That's what lockdown means. Um, well, we don't have to worry, David, because... Uh... Uh, Joe Stiglitz has uh, decided to write for The Guardian, uh, a global debt crisis is looming. How can we prevent it? Uh, so I was very interested in this because he's going to tell me how we're going to prevent this global debt crisis. He says, uh, while the COVID-19 pandemic rages, more than 100 low and middle income countries will still have to pay a combined $130 billion in debt service this year, around half of which is owned to private creditors. And he says, with much economic activity suspended and fiscal revenues in freefall, many countries will be forced to default. 
A global debt crisis today will push millions of people into unemployment and fuel instability and violence around the world. Another costly migration crisis could be on its way as well, and that nightmare scenario, though, is avoidable if we act now, he says. Uh, taxpayers and creditor countries will once again be, end up bailing out excessive risk-taking and imprudent lending by private actors. Uh, fortunately, there's an underused alternative. Are you ready for this, David? Uh, voluntary sovereign debt buybacks. Debt buybacks, he says, are widespread in the, in the corporate world uh, and have proved effective in both, uh, both in Latin America in the 1990s and more recently in the Greek context. And they have the advantage of avoiding the harsh terms that typically come with debt swaps. A buyback program's principal objective would be to reduce debt burdens by securing significant discounts, i.e. haircuts, uh, on the face value of sovereign bonds by minimizing exposure to risky private creditors. But a buyback program could also be designed to advance health and climate goals. So it gets it's a gift that keeps on giving. So the buyback program could also be designed to advance health and climate goals by requiring that the beneficiaries spend the money that otherwise would have gone into to debt service on creating public goods. Uh, a multilateral buyback facility could be managed by the IMF. So it gets even better because we're talking now about multilateral buybacks and they're going to create an uh, a special mechanism for this. Countries that do, need, do not need their full allocation of special drawing rights, the IMF's unit of account, i.e. this special IMF currency, uh, could donate or lend that to the new facility. So, David, I don't know what you think of that, but I think that's a spectacular way out of this mess. Spectacular is the word. I, there, was a, there was a spoof film in the 70s about a huge traffic jam. Right, and and they, they 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 had this huge problem. They put it into the computer, and the computer said, "Do a complete traffic reversal." Right, and and this this didn't this did not go well. They basically said to every car in this this citywide traffic jam, "Go backwards." That, that seems to be what he's suggesting: voluntary sovereign debt buyback, haircuts. Yeah, it always comes down to the same thing, where people lend money to governments, and then the governments can't pay, and they, what what's the response? They say to the people who lent the money, "You guys are predators." We need a cram down. We we need some debt relief here, and you're going to have to take 30p in the pound and count yourself lucky. Yeah, that's that that that's going to come. Yeah, ab absolutely. Did you have thoughts? I, I I'm speechless <laughs> uh, when when you cover when you cover the financial economic debt stuff, and then haircuts were mentioned. I realised that there was something badly wrong here. We're living madness. This is this is government created madness, obviously, because when people are confused and disorientated, anything can be done. Uh, absolutely. Uh, now, David, we've been uh, producing a little podcast series called Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree, which actually, by coincidence, uh, has gone into some of these areas. Uh, and we're just about, uh, particularly in episode four that we're just about to publish on Tuesday. So uh, uh, the, the, it's, it's amazing, the coincidence there. Yes, we're, we're actually struggling to keep up with the actual crazy that's, that's coming out in, the, in, the, in, in a given week. You know, so we're 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 analysing as quickly as we can. We hope to catch up with the crazy, but it's 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 moving at quite a pace. Uh, well, indeed. Now on Friday we were talking crazy. Uh, Lloyd's Bank, uh, their bad loan provision had gone up to three point eight billion pounds for the first half of this year. Uh, well, HSBC has just published their bad loan provision, and here it is: six point nine billion pounds. David, are you sad? Are you, are you impressed with that? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, this is this is a, a fine bank founded by Scottish drug dealers, and I always look to them for financial leadership. And what they're saying is bad loans. Yes, there's lots, um, and they're quite right. And there's going to be lots and lots. Um, but it's okay because it, you know we just need to give it all a haircut, and then a bad loan becomes a good loan. And don't worry. Uh, unless unless you've got a pension fund, in which case I, I would worry. Yeah. yeah. I'll just, I'll just add, we should remember, of course, that the chief executive of Common Purpose, Julia Middleton, said in her book, Beyond Authority, that some of the very best leaders she'd ever met were East German bankers. They were just brilliant people. <laughs> so uh, could, could it be this policy, this banking policy from those East German bankers that we're now seeing, Deutsche Bank? So did you say banking policy or spanking policy? I wasn't well, sure. whichever it was. Yeah. Should, no. have been, should have been banking, but I had a problem with words last week. So. Yeah, absolutely right. Okay, David, just to end this uh, little economic section, then Duncan Bannatyne, uh, well, he's pretty upset with the, with the lockdown in Scotland. It's damaging his business. He's going to have to lay off significant numbers of his staff, and uh, he's basically saying to them, "I'm not taking my money back to Scotland." I mean. Well, this is this is the, this this is another example of spanking policy. Duncan Bannatyne, a successful Scot Scottish entrepreneur, self-made man. Uh, who, who's built a business empire, has looked at Scotland and says, well, I wouldn't set up a business there now, and I don't know anyone who would. So well done, SNP, steadily driving every Scot with ambition and get up and go out of the country uh, by making it so toxic to do business here that no one wants to. Yeah. Uh, right. Now, we're, we're over time, but we're going to keep going for a little bit here. I want to uh, come on to the Scot Scottish hate bill in a second, uh, David, but just before we do, uh, are you tired of paying for BBC waste and bias? This is a question being asked by Defund the BBC, which seems to be a new campaign. Uh, they're saying that uh, the BBC have made the licence fee rules deliberately unclear in order to keep people coughing up. This is not right. Uh, we will develop and distribute guidance material to raise awareness and deliver clarity on the legal implications of cancelling your TV licence now uh, so that you can do so without worry. They say that the BBC system for catching and prosecuting non-licence fee payment is discriminatory and disproportionately affects women and poor due to a deliberate lack of clarity around the right to refuse entry. This has to stop. We will lobby the government to decriminalise the licence fee by the end of 2020. It's not reasonable for people to be forced by fear of imprisonment to pay a licence fee in order to watch or record non-BBC live TV. We'll work towards bringing about the necessary change to the BBC Charter and so on. So who's uh, behind this? Uh, well, here we go. Uh, five people. Uh, James uh, Yusuf, uh, sorry, Yusuf, uh, he says that he's just a student that's fed up, so he's founded that movement. Uh, on the right-hand side there, though, we've got da Darren Grimes. Now, of course, he came to notoriety uh, because he was fined £20,000 by the Electoral Commission uh, after uh, there was some claim that uh, the, the organisation Believe, a Brexit organisation, had spent more than £675,000 uh, with uh, Aggregate IQ in coordination with the Brexit, Brexit campaign organisation Vote Leave uh, in order to distribute targeted uh, advertising on Twitter and so on. Uh, now, he was uh, eventually had that, uh, uh, that uh, fine overturned. Uh, Rebecca Ryan there, she is uh, from Global Vision, um, which is an absurd Brexit uh, media organisation. Liam Deacon, uh, a former reporter and Brexit Party head of press. So quite a Brexit uh, uh, grouping here. But also we've got uh, Calvin Robinson there, um, who David has uh, published 
amongst other things. He's a journalist, but he's published this. Britain's schools don't need a black curriculum. He's black himself, of course. Don't need a black curriculum. We'd be do better to do, to, sorry, we do better to teach our young people that British history belongs to all of us. Uh, and that is something that unites us, uh, regardless of race, creed or religion. So I don't think we'd disagree with that too much. No, and wouldn't it be wouldn't it be fun if the BBC finally lost a license fee because a whole lot of Brexiteers were so disgusted with the way they treated the Brexit subject that they started to use the not inconsiderable uh, campaigning skills to target the Beeb as the next um, head on the chopping block. Yes, indeed. Now look, let's uh, let's finish with this one, David, because uh, the hit hit crime bill in Scotland uh, really needs to be uh, understood by people. Yes, and it's going very badly for Humza. So this is the Herald uh, having a sort of summary article. Uh, they're saying the Scottish government's illiberal hate crime bill must be sent to the knackers yard, which is actually an extremely accurate summary if we were at. Uh, and they re it reads here, when the Scottish Police Federation, the Catholic Church, the Law Society of Scotland get together to condemn the Scottish government's hate crime bill for endangering freedom of speech, you would think that ministers might be tempted to listen. I can't offhand think of any issue that has united policemen, lawyers and churchmen in quite this way before, at least not in the modern age. And of course, there's not a lot of listening going on from the Scottish Government, although Humza says he's going to negotiate a little bit around the detail. Now, it's worth just looking at a little more detail of what the Scottish Police Federation have said about this. So this is Callum Steele, General Secretary of the Scottish Police Federation. Quote, we are firmly of the view that the proposed legislation would see officers policing speech and would devastate the legitimacy of police in the eyes of the public. That can never be an acceptable outcome. We should never forget that the police in Scotland police only with the consent of the people. Police officers are all too aware that there are individuals in society who believe that to feel insulted or, or offended is a police matter. The bill would move even further from policing and cr criminalising deeds and acts to the potential policing of what people think or feel, as well as criminalisation uh, criminalization of what is said in private. We support and adopt the comments of Fred McIntosh QC and others in relation to the removal of available defences which exist for the current hate crime offences. If the bill is presented as passed, those accused of new offences of stirring up hatred will not have the opportunity to prove that they did not intend to stir up hatred or that they had no reason wow. to suspect their, con their conduct would do so. We do not for one second suggest that prejudice, racism or discrimination are desirable qual uh, qualities in society, um, but the need to address these matters um, uh, when they reach a criminal level is met by laws already in place, and the cost to free speech of going further with this bill is too high a price to pay for very little gain. That's a stunning condemnation and, and uh, I mean, an absolutely spot on analysis from the Scottish Police Federation. So you've seen, they're saying that it's the end of policing because they will, they will be seen as a thought police. They know where this is going, uh, even if Hamza Yusuf cannot see it. Now, the Telegraph reports this as well. The Telegraph says SNP's hate crime bill poses a grave threat to freedom of the press and risks a society of fear. Um, and they're looking at various press organisations of what, what who are united against this, this bill. Uh, one of those is the Society of Editors in Scotland. Uh, so they're reporting concerns over the Scottish, the Scottish hate crime bill. Uh, and that those concerns are shared by the News Media Association. 
uh, and the Society of Editors and um, the Scottish Newspaper Society. So all of the press are seeing the threat that this poses. Um, and again, in the press, we've got the Times here, the, the Times Scotland uh, view on the hate crime bill, an act of folly. Um, and they, they go on to list the organisations uh, that are concerned with the bill, since it's diverse as the Scottish Police Federation, the Law Society, the National Secular Society, the Scottish Catholic Church. Um, and they talk about the problems of stirring up hatred or acting in a manner that is likely to result in stirring up hatred. It will also be an offence to possess or communicate inflammatory material that is deemed likely to encourage hatred. It's hardly inconceivable that this could potentially place bookshops or libraries or individuals with, with material on the bookshelves in a position where they find themselves inadvertently breaking the law. Now, there is a, an organisation, a, a campaign group set up to, uh, to fight this. We reported on this last week. It's called Free to Disagree. And it's led by the Christian Institute, but it's like like all of these campaigns in Scotland of late, it's extremely broadly based. So here we see Jim Sillers, ex ex uh, convener, um, de sorry, deputy leader of the SNP, uh, Stuart Wayton, the National Secular Society, and Maddie Cairns, a, a journalist, all all forming a major part of this campaign. And there's a problem because the National Secular Society are campaigning. And this has gone down badly. So here we see Stuart MacDonald MP, who we've covered many times. I have this morning emailed the chief executive of the National Secular Society, and like Patrick Harvey, resigned as an honorary associate. The decision to team up with the Christian Institute is a serious lapse in judgment with which I cannot be associated directly or indirectly. And he, and he tweets in, he copies in a... a, a, a tweet from Patrick Harvey here. And he also then had a go to Stuart Waiting personally. Um, that's before you get to working with Stuart Waiting. Jeez, oh, what has happened at the National Secular Society? So apparently Stuart Waiting is is the Antichrist in, in or the Christ, whatever, in, in uh, Mr. McDonald's view. Now, the Patrick Harvey tweet that he referred to there was in fact a part of a long thread of ranting so it's worth just looking at some of the things he was saying. So Patrick Harvey says, a thread on why I've resigned as honorary associate of the National Secular Society. I'm a strong believer in a secular society where religion isn't given advantages by the state, where people are equal regardless of religion, where religious freedom can include freedom from religion. But he goes on, the National Secular Society are campaigning against the bill, which isn't a problem, of course, even if I disagree with them. What I cannot accept is they've formed a joint campaign with the Christian Institute, a deeply homophobic, transphobic, religious extremist organisation. So remember those words, deeply homophobic, transphobic, religious extremists. That now means Christian in the eyes of uh, Patrick Harvey. Uh, but it gets worse. He continues... Uh, in my view, the Christian Institute should be treated as a hate group. So he's now suggesting that they should be prescribed by law and prosecuted, treated as a hate group, not an ally to work with. The National Secular Society should recognise while there are legitimate debates to be had and the best way to tackle hate crime, the CI is not interested in those. Uh, I hope this National Secular Society will reconsider their alliance with these people argue their own position in the bill in their own terms and stop treating as allies an organisation which stands for utterly toxic values until they do them out. So remember, Christianity, utterly toxic values. That's where the left are now viewing it. Now, 
it did strike me as uh, not entirely coincidental that in America, Antifa are now publicly burning Bibles. So we're seeing that the left, the, the far left, the postmodern left, the new left, are now turning around and going for Christianity. I'm sure they'll get to the Jews next, but they're going for Christianity in a, in a big way. And it's very nasty, and it's, it's painting it as an entirely toxic, um, hate-filled philosophy. Right? And that's, that's the line they're going on, and it's the, they're looking to use the law to crush it. So that's where we're going, and it's just worth noting that that's uh, the, the direction of travel. And well done for the secular society to actually stand up and realize that the hate crime bill um, is about crushing free exchange of ideas. You see it in those tweets. You see it in Patrick Harvey's tweet. He wants to crush the Christian Institute and Christian organizations and prevent them from speaking because it's hate. He sees them as hate groups. That's what the hate crime bill is, is about. They can't win the argument. They're going to crush the, the opposition using the state. David, very, very serious um, topic, which we will certainly have to do more on. We need to end now. It's been quite a long news, very serious news. We'll say to people, don't sit at home worrying about these things. Get talking to other people, get warning other people, challenge people in authority. Uh, because we have to spread the message. And I'll just end by saying that you mentioned act of folly there. This is something that people still say. It's madness. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. No, what we're looking at is deeply malicious, calculated policy, which is now being unleashed here in UK. And we can see uh, the same com coming in America. So this is calculated. It's planned. We need to get the bottom of who produces the policy that's now damaging our society. Uh, David, thanks very much for joining us. We'll leave it there. We'll be back at the same time, excuse me, on Wednesday. Bye-bye.